we actually got some follow-up to talk about um because we do we know nothing john snow <laughs> <laughs> remember we talked about um extending our package use usage um popover last time i do we were going to add a product to it and we but even better than that we followed through and actually did add a product uh, clause to that that uh, use this package window so tell me what went wrong sven well we talked and we even ranted about package names and, and all that remember with the swift prefix yeah how people should name their repository one way and then use the name inside the package as something nice you know without the swift prefix and stuff mm -hmm. well it turns out the product clause that you need to put into your dependencies uh, you know when you have a have a target depend on a product there you specify the product name that you use and you specify something called package colon is the mm -hmm. is the label for the um for the product um thing i said this is the package name it isn't it isn't um we use the package name in the clause that we construct there but it actually that that actually produces a wrong product clause because what actually needs to go in there is i think what swift pm internally calls the package identifier and this is derived from the repository <laughs> so i i tried out a package which had a package name auto merge but its repository is called swift dash auto merge okay and what needs to be in that product clause is swift dash auto merge um i i really really hope that once we move to package registries which will really have proper package identifiers and i think there's a scheme proposed where you have like a an owner slash package um mm -hmm. sort of scheme which obviously you know then allows you to uh, disambiguate in case uh in the probably common case that there will be overlap in package names um once that's there that'll probably allow for better package names and still avoid clashes in names but currently what seems to be happening and i vaguely recall seeing this is that swift pm uses an identifier based on the repository name um internally as a package id and that's the thing you need to specify and and i i guess that's perhaps why it's called just package colon and not package name because it's not really the name but the identifier so hold on it's coming from the git repository nothing to do with the package i i think so i can't think of another place where okay wow as I, actually not swift dash auto merges auto merge dash dash swift is the name of the repository and what's what um swift pm says needs to be so it, i i tried this with just auto merge as the package label there uh, and uh, swift pm package resolve says the only valid package it knows about is auto merge dash swift and the only place the only other name the manifest doesn't talk about auto merge dash swift um if i recall correctly so the only other thing that has that name is is the repository so i'm learning about this for the first time live on the podcast um <laughs> because I, I knew that there was the issue because you opened an issue this morning but this is the first i've heard of the of, of the solution and i think it says quite a lot that um i mean i would say both you and i have a reasonably good understanding of swift package manager at this point after working on the package index for three years and if if we get it wrong 
It's too confusing. Well, maybe not. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess, are we going to have to um, pass, I suppose we have the repository name already in our database. So we, this, is, this I think is fixable, isn't it? It is fixable. I wonder if we should. So I'd love for the proper fix to be, I know. So for, for instance, if you look in package resolved, um, the JSON file that get, gets written out after you run Swift package resolve in there, the struct, if I recall correctly, has an identifier. So it says for packages, it has a URL. And in the version two of that struct, um, there is also an identifier. And I, I think that's the thing I need to confirm this. And I would rather try and, and grab it from there. Yes. Or some official source than try and guess it from the um, repository name, you know, because that might change. And then we have subtle breakage. I'd really like, because also this will, this will certainly change once we move to registries, because then I think the package format will use proper package identifiers and not, you know, these names that we're guessing. And we should really try and have some canonical source for what's actually used to identify what package you're looking at. Um, and I think that'll solve everything in the end. And I, I truly hope right. the thing that we arrive at there isn't a Swift Dash thing, but just a proper name that's dis disambiguated across um, projects and stuff, but is, is still nice and readable and um, has maybe a subcomponent or just a separate name that is descriptive and can um, be ambiguous because it's not the one used for identity matching, but will be the, you know, can be the one that's displayed elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So, but, but this thing we thought it was, isn't that. Um, the, the downside is that we've already shipped uh, and deployed <laughs> the wrong version, <laughs> uh, but that's okay. We can fix it and, and, and get it working uh, uh, shortly. Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's not a common problem. Um, the vast majority of the packages actually have those aligned anyway. Of course. Um, yes. It's probably, we're punishing the ones that actually do the right thing, <laughs> so, sort of. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and we should absolutely fix it. No good deed goes unpunished. That's the way it is, isn't it? There is uh, another piece of news that we have uh, this week, um, which is we shipped... Um, a new feature to visualize the number of um, macros that a package uh, includes. So we've had this data in the database for a little while now, and uh, a few weeks ago, we shipped um, support for searching on whether a package has uh, macro targets. Um, and now we uh, have a new bullet point on the metadata section in the package page, which shows you if it has any targets and if so, how many targets it has. Um, and I already found it useful uh, today when I was looking through package recommendations for the podcast. Um, and I, I looked at this one package and the name of this package suggested to me that it might include a macro. And I instantly opened the package page and discovered that I was wrong and it didn't have a macro in it. <laughs> <laughs> But that was, you know, that saved me a whole load of digging through um, the, the package for, for, for manually trying to figure out that information. It was nice to be able to see uh, to see that right there on the package page. So nice. Yeah, that's another small but uh, small but uh, uh, important improvement. Nice to have that on there and not just in the search. 
it was a little bit of a struggle um, to come up with an icon to represent the concept of a macro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the closest I could get was macro photography, so it looks like a uh, shutter in a camera, uh, but it, I, I am aware that that is stretching it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very obvious icon, I'd say. You, you, try, you try and represent macro better. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. Maybe maybe a a puzzle piece. Now that I think of it. Okay. With what 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 connection? Um, well, it sort of expands and is a piece of a larger puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, in my head, that is... <laughs> I'm very happy with a camera shutter, yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I'm too late now anyway. <laughs> right, in in other news, um, there's something worth mentioning, and that is GitHub added CodeQL support um, recently, and there was a really nice introductory post by Tim Condon on the Swift forums. I saw it, yeah. And what this does... Um, is it allows you to add um, uh, code quality checks um, that run automatically on pull requests and your main branch. So this is something, it's it's really simple. I just added this um, this morning to one of our repositories to try it out. It's really just a small YAML snippet that you put into a new um, workflow file in your .git um, GitHub uh, workflows directory. And then it runs a check automatically and i guess it checks for um specific um quality metrics in swift code uh, common um, bugs and stuff like that and and the new thing is obviously that it now supports swift this has been around i think for other languages for quite a while and it's new that this is supporting swift now um as i said we added this to a semantic version one of our packages and we'll also add a link in the show notes what this looks like. There's a little overview page for um, the most recent scan to show that it's working and it's done its job and hopefully not found anything. So that's quite nice. And another thing that GitHub added recently is um, in Dependabot, there's now support for Swift. Um, now, Dependabot also is a feature that has been around for a while for other languages which is a tool that checks for outdated dependencies in your package. Um, and so if you add this to your repository, it'll go through, and now it's supporting Swift, it'll check if there are any Swift dependencies that are outdated that should be updated. Um, we've actually had this for a while now with a different package, and that's a GitHub action by Marco Eidinger. It's called Swift Package Dependencies Checker. Um, which is also really nice and we'll actually keep using that tool because this tool is uh, supports the latest Swift version. Now, the GitHub Dependabot uh, feature only supports Swift 5.9, but with our main repository where we're using it, we're already on the Swift 5.9 beta, so we can't actually use it there yet. So Marco's um, tool is or action is still very useful for us and is also uh, a really nice thing to get the same feature effectively. So what this does, it'll open a pull request on your repository when there are changes in your dependencies. You can review those and then just merge it if you're happy and have want all your dependencies to move up to the latest version. Yeah, it's great. And um, I think, I mean, there was, MacroScript is, is really good um, and we've been using it happily for months now, if not maybe a year, something like that, a long time anyway. Um, but obviously that takes 
that takes investigation and first of all you have to have the 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 idea to research whether anyone's figured out a way to do this and then one thing that's really important about some company like github taking uh hold of this problem is that it raises this issue into people's kind of into the front of people's minds you know there'll be a lot of press around um blog posts and people talking about it and us talking about it on the podcast and other podcasts talking about it and that kind of thing and half of the advantage of that is just letting people know oh if you haven't yet done this then this is a great great thing to think about for your uh, projects and repositories yeah and in particular because the onboarding is so easy the, there's a couple of things you can just do with a click of a button and the most extensive um a dependency check because it can actually do a dependency check also beyond your um your major version so it can actually alert you to yeah um a new latest major version that you're actually not opting into and that um, requires additional configuration but all the basic stuff is is actually just a click of a button so it's so easy to configure that there's really no reason not to do it um the only slight downside is that github doesn't have a great history um, supporting the latest um, beta versions of stuff, you know, like macOS version in particular, the runners are always a bit behind and the Swift version, I mm-hmm. it, it doesn't support it right now, but it's also a very new feature, so we can't judge it based on that. Um, we'll have to see how that goes, but I suspect if you're tracking the latest beta version of Swift, you might you might not um that might not be the tool for you then in that case yeah although there's another way to look at that which is that now this tool supports swift um and more and more people would be relying on this tool i don't think they'll go into beta versions just yet but it might uh it might increase the urgency of upgrading to latest release versions because if they don't then this tool will stop working for certain a certain amount of projects and 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 maybe that will slightly um uh, up the priority of those upgrades a little bit um i think there's one other thing worth mentioning here which is part of this feature i think is actually switched on by default and you have to opt out rather than opting in and that is that if there is a uh, security uh, CVE uh, raised against any um, Swift package, it will depend upon will automatically, without you opting into anything, it will automatically uh, alert you to that problem. And you can then opt in as well to have it raise a pull request to increase the version of just that one package uh, outside of the global dependency update thing. Oh, that's really nice. I wasn't aware of that. That's really cool. Yes. This, this whole automatic tracking and reporting is, is just so great because it's the thing, if you don't think about that and set up the schedules for that, um, it's really easy to, to just miss out on all of this. And you might have an idea to sometimes run Swift package update and, and absorb that, but you know, who does that manually? It's just something you easily forget. Yeah. Right. Another thing we might want to talk about is, um, uh, an upcoming feature, I mean, not upcoming in the sense of next week or the week after, but it's something that we've been working on for quite a while. And it got sort of pulled to the forefront again, because as part of Tipenderbot, um, there is uh, something in GitHub that it will obviously deal with dependencies. And I think there's also a 
a way to see um, package dependencies of Swift projects. I haven't actually seen the UI, but I saw some mention of it. Um, I need to um, go back and check if it's actually in the Git UI. But it reminded me that we had started work um, a while back on displaying dependencies on the package page in the Swift package index. Now we do something already. We do show the total dependency count of a package on the package page. Yes. And all of this is based on packaged resolved, which is the file that Swift PM writes out when it does the um, package resolution. Um, now this dependency count is nice. Um, it is useful, but it's also, um, it captures all dependencies. Um, that is both the transient dependencies as well as the, as the test dependencies. And that might not always be the thing you're looking for. Um, and we certainly want to extend this. And we spent some time quite a while ago to look into how to extend this, in particular to break out the test targets so we can actually um, uh, display these separately, like the, yeah. I call them product dependencies, which are the dependencies that your products, your package products depend on, and the test dependencies separately, um, and in particular to make those dependencies uh, navigatable on the package page. And I think it's just worth mentioning at this point how how this problem is manifesting itself with the current implementation that we have. So if you look at a package at the moment, you might see this package has four package dependencies. And let's say, for example, that package uses one dependency in the actual package, and then quick and nimble, and maybe another test dependency to run their tests. Seeing on a package page, this package has four dependencies might put somebody in a frame of mind of like, oh, actually, that's quite a, quite a lot of dependencies to have. Um, for what might be a small package, but actually three of them are only there to run the tests, which, I mean, I, in my opinion, test dependencies are, dependencies are much less uh, important when I'm choosing uh, a, a potential dependency for my project than, than if it were a, uh, a product uh, dependency. And also, it's also not clear on our webpage whether those dependencies are direct or transient. And, I think if I saw four dependencies or three dependencies or two, I'd assume that's too top level. But we have no, we have no current way of showing that information. Yeah, and it'll be really nice if the top level dependencies were shown, right? And you could click through, and then if they are actually a, a package in the index, it'll land on that package page. It would be really nice to have that graph traversable. Um, you know, obviously, if if it's not in the index, which is unlikely because we actually add them automatically if we find we have a nightly job that goes through and if a package is referenced by another package that's in the index, it's then added to the index um, in uh, the next day. So we should actually have a, a fully yes. um, onboarded graph of packages, but um, it would be really nice to have those exposed and, you know, make them navigatable. Um, so yeah, that's certainly something we want to do. And what we did first is look at package resolve because that's really easy to do. And Swift PM does all the heavy lifting of actually uh, accounting for all those dependencies. But the problem is actually doing the resolving. Yeah, that's the problem. And there is nothing in package resolve that will tell you afterwards what are direct dependencies, what are transient dependencies, 
what are test dependencies. It's just a flat list of dependencies and, and that's why we have that fixed number and we can't really separate those out. There is a way of doing that that's not too crazy that um, we spend some time um, figuring out how to do and, and this is the approach we'll take. Um, but it's maybe worth thinking of the main queries where we're wanting to support with this. Um, and obviously all of this is up for discussion and uh, we actually have an issue where we're currently tracking our thoughts around this, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, and I think, I mean, you alluded to this, the product dependencies are really where the meat of the matter is because those are the ones that go into your app or your service, whatever it is. Those are the ones that partake in your, in your, um, artifact that you're shipping. So those are the ones that are going to be impacted by CVs and the like. Um, or just source code breakage, right? If if there's if you want to assess ahead of time, how exposed am I to potential API changes and having to deal with them? Mm -hmm. The lower the number of packages, you know, the, the less likely that is. Um, so that's, that's why that's important. Um, and this also assumes that in a pinch, right, if there's if there's breakage due to something in test dependencies, you can you can ignore those, right? If if your test dependencies depend on a package um, that has a change so that you can't run your tests and you really need to get out a hotfix, I think you can have an argument and say, right, okay, we we need to fix this. We can do some manual testing, we get this out, and then we deal with the yes. test dependency after the fact. That's that's probably something you can get away with. If that's a product dependency, you can't. So, 100%, so that's yeah. why that distinction is certainly important. Um, but test dependencies are still important because there's this other thing that comes up um, again and again, and that's being referred to as the software bill of materials. And that's effectively your complete attack surface to supply chain attacks. And test dependencies do play a role there because you run stuff, you know, you run your tests mm -hmm. and anything you do in CI or locally, anything you run and anything, any source code that goes into impact what you run there is open to any um, malicious package in messing with what you're running and where you're running it, right? You could, um, a while back, way back, there was, uh, um, um, compromised Xcode version that got shipped and or got, you know, people were tricked into downloading it and that impacted how you ran your stuff. And then downstream from there are all sorts of problems, you know, like secrets being leaked because of stuff like that. So you still want to know what your total mm -hmm. surface is, you know, how, what code are you actually pulling in across your whole package? But there's a bit of a difference in, in, importance, I guess, or um, because these supply chain chain attacks are are probably not targeted at an indie developer, or, or if if it is, uh, you know, you're probably, you're probably not going to be picked on it, they're going to pick the, the big targets, the important targets. Um, but it's a certainly a good thing to have exposed and to be able to see ahead of time, what the list of packages really is what that bill of materials really is. Um, and maybe the last thing that's interesting is usage tracking. And that's how many packages depend on this package P that you're looking at. Um, and while that's an interesting metric, that's probably one that we can never really produce in a, in a useful sense, because 
we only see open source packages. So any usage we would ever see in these metrics is open source packages using this open source package. And given that we currently track 6,000 packages and there's like, uh, it's millions of apps out there, right? This is going to be dwarfed. Like it's the number of, of actually packages using a, a package like Alamo Fire. It's not the packages that we have in index that use Alamo Fire that are the actual clients of Alamo Fire. The clients of Alamo Fire are all the apps in the app store that actually embed the that library and we, we have no usage stats on those. So that is probably not really even a useful thing to try and expose. Yeah, it's tragic in a way because because we do have, well, we will have a, a really nice set of data, but I would say that unless we come up with a way for uh, people who build apps to anonymously report what packages they are depending on in their app, which we could do, um, and we don't need to go into how, how we could do that, but we could do that. But I also think that, you know, even if we went down that route, there's so much work to do to get people to adopt that that i'm not sure we could ever trust that data and i think it's it's almost a little bit of a tragedy that we'll have a subset of this but we won't really ever be able to do anything useful with it yeah i think it might be really nice and maybe that's an option if a package registry had a way of yes reporting that back um to us or, or some service because i think there's value in that um for you even for the clients of Alamo Fire to report that back because then on the on the way back that could be reporting of CVEs. Imagine someone is for instance using Swift Neo um, and there could be just like Dependabot, um, there could be a service maybe based on the package index in combination with the registry uh, to report back to um, application authors um, that there's something wrong and, and notify them that there's a CVE against a package that they're using. Um, so that, that might be a nice avenue to incentivize people to opt in if it's an opt-in process um, to this kind of reporting. And that data is in many ways much better than a lot of the data that language uh, other language indexes use. So for example, a lot of um, uh, dependency indexes for other languages use downloads as a metric of right. how yeah. popular something is. So uh, whenever whenever a, a package is grabbed by the package manager, they'll tick up a count on the number of downloads. And that's certainly an indicator, but it's there's enough downloads that are someone trying out a package or just testing something. Whereas if you actually have what packages are actually in use at build time that's that's really different information um and i think is probably a better indicator but it's we've got such a long road to go down for for that to be um to, to be anything like useful and i think step one is exactly what we're planning to do here which is give people some information about the dependencies of the packages that they are considering using themselves and not to worry about the bigger picture yeah, and, and I'm hopeful that we can break this down further because it's quite a large piece. I went through my notes this morning um, to <laughs> sort of recap where where we left it. And um, this is going to be quite complicated. Uh, and hopefully there's some intermediate things that we can release to make that um, incrementally more useful than it is now with a total count. Even if it's just the case of 
bringing the data in bit by bit or and the bits of extra bits of analysis on the data bit by bit yeah. before we expose anything to the user interface so yeah i think it would be good to 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 chip away at this in smaller chunks it's always always better to approach things that way yeah definitely um right we've actually we've um we've witted on quite extensively today <laughs> let's uh, let's get into some package recommendations um do you want to give us a first one my first one is called data kit by paul kraft um paul kraft well, kraft he's he's german so i'm confident in <laughs> in the pronunciation of the name <laughs> that's that's not what i got from the way you said that i didn't get any confidence at all that's when <laughs> damn <laughs> um <laughs> DataKit is a really great package. I loved I loved seeing this. Um, it's a great package when you're working with custom binary data formats. And this sort of brought me back to a time several years ago when I had to decode a proprietary, proprietary data format. Um, and even way back further in the physics days, we were losing, using lots of proprietary custom data formats because it, it really, every bit even counted at the time. And this can be really fiddly, but what this package does, it gives you a um, result builder based DSL where you can actually specify this. It's really nice. It, it sort of looks like Swift UI layout, but for your data. Um, you can define static data blocks, like certain byte patterns that you want as, as markers. Um, you can then uh, specify your values, properties, do conversions where needed. So by values, properties, I mean, you know, like data types um, and, and obviously specify quite um, in detailed ways the, the bit size of them. Use conversions where needed. So that's really nice. The reading and writing can be driven driven by different conformers to a read format and a write format protocol. Um, that's if you have to do s different things or if you only implement a read of a format, for instance. Or you can do it jointly um, by conforming to a format. It's a bit like codable, you know, that has a encodable and a decodable form um, protocol that you um, conform to. And it also has a CRC checksum support component. So you can tack this on and then, um, I guess, in some way ensure that what you've received and decoded is actually um, came across the wire and is, is intact still. Really nice. This whole thing works in the playground, so you can use our feature uh, to try in a play playground, which I always love calling out because that's how I actually play with packages and, and uh, look at them. And you can, and that I would have found really, really useful working and trying to load a file, stick this in, and then piece by piece try and pass a file back out. Um, so really nice package. Um, Data Kit by Paul Kraft. How was that for for the pronunciation, Dave? Yes, much better, <laughs> much more confident. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, my first package is. Um, a package that we don't use directly, but we do use the underlying technology behind it. So the package is called Swift Whisper by Aaron Taylor. And it is a um, a wrapper around uh, a C++ library that interacts with the Whisper um, AI model from, I believe it's OpenAI that produces the Whisper model. Um, and Whisper takes uh, audio files and will transcribe them with quite unbelievable accuracy. It is a remarkable, uh, a remarkable 
library um, that so we use it um, to transcribe all of these podcasts. We we run it through uh, an application uh, called Mac Whisper by Geordie Bruin. Um, there's also a uh, app called uh, Ico, which I believe is by Sindre Sohus. Um, and both of those use the Whisper model to take in an MP3 file or a web file and produce a transcript. And I mean, I, I'll... I'll I'll see how it does with the uh, with your pronunciation of the <laughs> of the previous author's <laughs> name <laughs> this time, um, but it does actually get um, author names like remarkably accurately uh, transcribed. It's a it's an amazing bit of software, um, and so this uh, package is a way for you to interact with that uh, model from a Swift application. Um, it doesn't come with the models included, but it does include a link uh, where you can download pre-trained models because obviously the model is is a is is a huge part of that uh, of that dependency. Um, but um, yeah, it seems like a really easy way to uh, to get uh, either offline or even potentially real time translation uh, transcription. Sorry, into uh, an application that you're looking at. And the nice thing about it is that these models can be shipped along with your app, so they don't. It doesn't. It's not the kind of thing that requires an online connection. Nice. Yeah, I'm. I'm really surprised about the quality of these tools and how quickly that evolved. Because I, I recall that being um, quite difficult, and and often, you know, especially with technical terms and names and stuff. This. This is so amazing that this actually works. I mean, there's still cases where this doesn't work correctly, but you can see with with you know bigger models that it'll it'll get there. And I, even even humans fail at this at times, right? You misunderstand something, or you have a different term in mind and are confused about what it is. So it's not not surprising that this goes wrong sometimes. And we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, and and this idea of. Um, uses for ai that don't involve the ai having to come up with kind of original thought or original data or yeah. knowledge-based answers and things like that and this is a perfect example of that yes it might not get every single bit of transcription correct but it's never going to just start hallucinating <laughs> or at least yeah. in our experience it doesn't it doesn't hallucinate it sometimes it sometimes makes mistakes but it never hallucinates and and it's because it's that that problem domain is very well suited to this kind of AI. Well, sticking with the theme, my second pick is actually very similar. It's called Cleverbird by BT Franklin. Um, and it's an open API, no, it's an open AI API wrapper. And I actually mistyped this in my notes because I always mix these up. Open AI API wrapper. Um, and it's actually the package we're using in one of our packages to generate package descriptions. So this is a little, um, proof of concept kind of thing that we're doing. Um, and I had a really interesting use case this week for these package descriptions. I actually used our tool to generate a package description for a package called Azuki Kana Kanji Converter. And this is a package, um, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes that has a readme in Japanese. And because the GitHub page is in English and the README is in Japanese. The Google's page, web page translation or Safari's web page translation doesn't work or it's it's not offered as a as an option. So 
um, I couldn't really tell what this package really does, and I wasn't sure if I might want to mention it. So I ran this tool on this package, and it actually gave me an English description of the package, what it does, and it, it does appear to make sense. Um, so that's that's really nice how these tools open up these things. Not only does it tell you what this page is about, at the same time it gives you a short summary. So that's I think that's a really interesting use case for these open AI or gener in general um, AI tools. Mm -hmm. um, you, you may or may not know this, but um, in the work that I did on the prompt for generating the summaries, um, I actually looked into also translating and there are lots of different options that that you can kind of get out of um uh, of gpt with translating or not translating you can you can and it understands the it understands your wishes to summarize something and also translate it at the same time or summarize it and keep it in the same language and there's lots of different options and again so that you're especially with the translation you're straying into stuff where where potential hallucination could be quite dangerous because um you might not know whether if it was translating something you might not know whether that translation was accurate or not mm. but certainly in summaries it's often operating on a very good set of initial data um but certainly that translation i think that actually made it into the prompt that we ended up using in the end that it should also translate it to english yeah, I recall. Didn't you test it with a Chinese package or something when you um, wrote yes, the prompt? Yes, we did yeah. With, yeah. with Chinese. Uh, I, th I think we tested it with both Chinese and Japanese right. uh, um, text. Nice. So yeah, that's so the the OpenAI wrapper API wrapper is called Cleverbird, and it's by BT Franklin. That's good. Um, my second package today is. Uh, called Stores, uh, and it's by Omar Albiq. And Stores is a um, key value store to store codable types, uh, but the destination of that store is, is configurable. Um, so with the same data layer, you can store your data in user defaults on the file system, into core data, into the keychain, um, and you've got the same interface to all of the storage, no matter what ultimate destination you're using. Now, obviously we've got Swift data, which is new this year and in beta at the moment. Uh, and from what I've seen so far, I really like um, Swift data. And I think, I think it, uh, it removes a lot of why I hesitated to always recommend core data, which is there's quite a lot of initial setup and you've got to think about, um, you've got to think about your storage quite carefully before you pick uh, core data. Um, where sometimes a plist file on a file system or a JSON file on a file system uh, might do just as good a job depending on what kind of data and how much data you're looking at. And what I quite liked about this package is that you can almost defer that decision. So with the same interface to the data store, you could start with file system store and then potentially move up to a core data store later. Um, of course, you are tied in and with any data storage package, or in fact, you know, any package that goes in at the root of your application, it's a much, um, what's the best way to say it? It's a much heavier dependency to take on than something that's right at the edges where you could easily replace it. You know, once you make a decision on your data store, 
you've got to be really cat. You've got to be really sure you want to stick with that data store. Yeah, that's load bearing. <laughs> <laughs> it is load bearing. That's exactly the way to describe it. Yeah, um, uh, but I, I quite like the idea of it, and it looks to be um, it looks to be uh, fairly um, mature. It's, it's only been around for eleven months, but um, uh, it's already had twelve uh, releases, so that's a good sign. Um, and it's well documented. The documentation is hosted on the package index, which we know that always gives people uh, a leg up into getting picked on this podcast. <laughs> uh, so that's stores. Right. My third pick is the Swift Composable Architecture package by Point Free. Uh, and the reason I want to mention it this week, um, and I think because I think I mentioned it before, is that the, they've now made their 1.0 release. Um, so I think that's that's certainly worth worth talking about briefly here. Um, we should also mention that Point Free are sponsors of Swift Package Index, um, but all their packages are open source and free. So you know the, you you can get a lot out of them. They really have great packages and. They have excellent documentation, so you don't need to subscribe to Point Free to make use of it. Um, this is all available and really, really high quality, even before 1.0 release. I've been using the composable architecture for, I think, um, at least three years now. Now, I'm not writing a whole lot of UI apps. I think I count like four small ones over the last four years, but they're all TCA-based. Because I once I learned how that works, it, it really resonated with me to the extent that I I really feel like I can't write UI apps anymore. Well, actually I didn't I never really felt comfortable writing UI apps before because of the way I tend to write code which is really test-based. So I really like to test stuff and UI code is often really hard to test. And that's perhaps the strongest argument for TCA that I can think of, at least personally for me, is that it it makes UI apps so testable um, and, and therefore manageable because the, the thing is you might bang out an, an app really quick without tests, but where it really pays off is in the maintenance. If you have, you know, add more features, have more releases, the bigger your test suite, the easier that still stays and remains updating your dependencies that sort of stuff all that stuff really scales much better uh, is easier more easily done if you have lots of tests and, and tci really makes that possible um, they have this um, unidirectional data flow where actions modify a state in a store and that's really the only way to modify your store and your views are really just displays of the store and that concept really makes it for me like really natural and easy to work with UI because it then becomes less magical. I always struggled with UI apps because stuff seemed to be happening happening magically. One change, little change over here in the app would suddenly make things happen on another end. Um, and I n never really got quite comfortable with that. And, and TCA, I think, is the thing that really made that click for me. Um, that you can test all the logic in unit tests and, and then have snapshot tests, for instance, for your UI views. Um, so yeah, there you go. TCA, the Composable Architecture 1.0, after a long uh, time of being in pre-release uh, by Point Free. 
I think it's also worth mentioning with uh, Composable Architecture that they've done a great job with obviously documenting it through their video series, of course, but also documenting it through actual documentation. And they've also put together one of those Doxy tutorials, um, which is an extensive, uh, I think it's like a four hour potential length uh, tutorial or something like that, that I saw um, that, you know, putting together a tutorial like that takes time and effort. Um, and it's great to see that kind of effort going into an open source package like this. Yeah, the other thing I really want to call out is you might think, well, 1.0, I'm going to wait for 1.1. The the way um, they've dealt with version changes, even leading up to 1.0, I don't recall a time when there was a breakage. They always had um, releases with uh, deprecation warnings and then the most detailed um, adoption documentation. You know, like, like when you adopt the new version, you need to, and you get deprecation warnings, you need to do this to, to fix those. Or, you know, if you jumped a few versions, you could see, all right, I need to do this and this to, you know, to, to fix my compiler errors because, you know, you skipped over the deprecation version, ended up on the new version. It's been, I've picked up apps that I'd written three years ago and, and went through, and it has always been really, really hassle-free to move along. And I, I'd say this is a safe library to adopt if you're concerned about um, breaking changes. It's it's really amazing the way they've dealt with this. Although to use your um, phrase from before, this is very much a load-bearing library. It, it is, yes. You have to be, you have to buy into the concept. This is not something you'll, this is not something you'll pick up in one evening, I guess, unless you're perhaps comfortable or um, you know React Native, which is, I think, very similar. Or, or I think Elm also has this unidirectional data flow um, concept. It's it's certainly different. It's quite, and it is an architecture. It's like an, an honest architecture that you need to adopt in your app. It's not something you, um, you should do lightly. Having said that, I do believe it's something you can adopt um, partially. So um, this might be something to look into. I do believe you can do this in you know in in a, in a screen or two in your app and, and see how it goes and take it from there. So you don't need to onboard your whole thing into this. But it's certainly easier to get to start out with this in a in a new app or a small app to to see how it goes. And and that goes to to Dave's point that there's a really really good tutorial and extensive tutorial. So there's there's lots of stuff there to to get started with it and see if if that's something for you. That's great. Um, my last package is not this week uh, a a cleverly or amusingly named package, but uh, it is uh, an amusing content to this package. <laughs> um, the package is is uh, is brand new, five days old, um, and it's called Swift NRC by Joe Hinkle. And I'm not entirely sure. I may be misrepresenting this package terribly. Um, in saying that it's kind of got a music content, but it's the the description of this package is Swift objects without reference counting. Do you ever wish you could go back to manual memory management? And Swift is the kind of language that just does not let you do that. <laughs> well, Swift NRC is here to help. Um, it's effectively a um, a package with um, a macro inside it, uh, which allows you to uh, use 
the unsafe pointers of Swift in uh, in a in a slightly um, more kind of is they they wrap up the unsafe pointers to allow you to do your own uh, memory management. I don't think you should use this package. <laughs> I think this package demonstrates some interesting things with macros. I don't think we should go back to manual man memory management, although there are potentially uses that may be performance or something like that. Although even then, I'd be really, I'd be really surprised if, if going back to pre-arc days was ever a good idea. Uh, but I did, it did make me smile. It did make me, it's an interesting little package. Uh, and I thought it was worth a mention. Very nice. <laughs> but please don't use it <laughs> right and with that i think we should call it um and uh we will be back in two weeks with more package recommendations and potentially an update on dependencies and potentially a fixed version of our use this package popover great see you in two weeks so until then i will see you in a couple of weeks bye 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 <laughs>